From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Governor Jared Polis and the state epidemiologist join us at a pivotal moment in the pandemic. There's another wave across the state, some promising vaccine news, and the president-elect is shaping what his approach will look like. I'll ask Governor Polis and Dr. Rachel Herlihy whether the state's doing enough to confront the current wave and what Colorado needs most from Washington. Then reintroducing gray wolves on the western slope. Getting paws on the ground um, does have significant hurdles in front of it. We'll explore those hurdles, which could include money. And later, we listen back to my interview with This American Life producer Susan Burton. Her new memoir, Empty, set largely in Boulder, is about her struggle with compulsive eating. To all of our supporters, thank you so much for your ongoing partnership with Colorado Public Radio. You know that a free and independent press is vital to the health of our democracy. Even during challenging times, CPR is dedicated to covering stories and issues with the depth, diversity, and thoughtfulness that you have come to depend on. However you choose to support CPR in the days and months ahead, please know that you are truly appreciated. You make it possible. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. You don't often hear the words optimism and coronavirus in the same sentence, but there was new reason to hope with Monday's announcement of a promising vaccine it could start rolling out by the end of the year. Here's Governor Jared Polis speaking at a press conference just a few hours after the news from drug maker Pfizer. The Pfizer vaccine is effective at over 90 percent of the time. That's a very good number. Just to put that in context, you know, flu vaccine, more 50, 60 percent range, 90 percent plus is sort of the gold standard for vaccines that work. Um, If enough people are inoculated with a 90 percent effective vaccine, it ends the pandemic. A caveat that it's been 90 percent effective in a sample of less than 100 people. The efficacy could drop with the full trial. A vaccine can't come fast enough. Case numbers are setting new records in Colorado. More than a thousand people are now hospitalized with COVID-19. In some communities, the virus is moving so fast, local officials have cracked down to slow the spread. And Governor Polis is with us. Welcome back to the program. Hi, Ryan. How are you? I'm doing well. And in a few minutes, we're going to hear as well from the state's epidemiologist, Dr. Rachel Herlihy. But, Governor, first off, how convinced are you that this vaccine is a tipping point and not hype? Well, people can take the news of the vaccine um, two ways. And and one way is very dangerous. One way is very positive. Uh, People might, uh, I hope not, be led to think that somehow this is is over and they can ease the social distancing. To be clear, the vaccine is not a cure. It doesn't help you once you've got COVID-19. It prevents you from getting it. And if people get the vaccine in December or January, they get the second dose a month later. Immunity builds a couple weeks later. Even after you get the shot, it takes uh, a month to two to build the immunity. So the way that I hope people take it is there's light at the end of the tunnel. Let's double down on social distancing. Let's double down. I know it's hard not to see your friends. I know it's hard not to live the lives we want to live. But now we know this is only for a couple more months here. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, the data is very strong. Uh, it's, it's, it's more than just 100. That's the people who got coronavirus. This is a test of 40,000 people. And then 90 who were in the placebo group got coronavirus, 10 who were in the actual, uh, actual vaccine got it. So it's 40,000 people. 
very positive. Of course, we're looking for more data. There's other vaccines out there. Right. Uh, but this is very, very exciting and a good reason for us to double down on delaying our social plans and avoiding others. I want to pick up on what you said there about the timeline, that some people could start to be inoculated, what did you say, by the end of the year. I imagine, what, those would be frontline health care workers, people who are particularly vulnerable. That wouldn't be all of Colorado, right? That's right. Uh, it's, it's likely it would be healthcare workers first. Uh, they're obviously at the greatest risk. Some of them have come down with COVID. Uh, they deal with patients with COVID. So uh, that first 100,000 is largely healthcare workers. Then it goes out to first responders and others. Uh, and then early next year, likely people over 65. And then the general population a few months into next year. We'll talk more about this potential vaccine with the state's epidemiologist as well. But I want to talk about what happens in the meantime, Governor. Local governments, Denver, Pueblo, just as examples, have set curfews and taken other steps to curb the spread of the virus. But last week, the heads of public health departments across the state wrote your Department of Health asking for more. They point out that you as governor have the power to impose stay-at-home orders in counties that exceed a threshold for illness. And they want you to do that county by county. Here is one of the signers of that letter, Dr. John Douglas of the Tri-County Health Department, which serves Arapaho, Douglas, and Adams counties. Our public health mitigation measures are not working as effectively at the current case rates. We just don't have enough people to call everybody who's infected and do a case investigation. We don't have nearly enough people to do contact tracing. Governor Polos, I want to be very clear that some of these public health officials say they are getting death threats, that they may not be empowered by their cities or counties to take drastic measures. But they say you have the authority, you have that sway. Why not exercise a stay-at-home power county by county? Well, this, this you know, it, it hasn't—the the, stay-at-home— period was a very blunt instrument that I think I share the hope of every Coloradan that we never need to use again. Uh, We have so many more uh, weapons at our disposal now. Obviously, the statewide mask mandate, which which did go statewide, uh, started out in several counties. We renewed that. The increased testing, the hospitalization surge, one of the reasons that we had to uh, uh, take those drastic steps in March is we, we only had our normal hospital capacity. Now we've built thousands of additional hospital beds um, for both uh, COVID and non-COVID to make sure the patients can get the best quality care. So we're in a much better place today. We have much more targeted interventions. Uh, it's really about figuring how working with our local health authorities, they can be effective as we learn more and more about the virus and reducing the spread. I think what they're saying is you've got the bully pulpit in a way that they do not to take surgical action county by county. And it's a power you're not using. Help them understand why not. Well, I think we're using the the bully pulpit. I hope you watch my uh, regular press conferences and I hope that most people haven't tuned it out. Uh, The biggest message of the last week or two has been delay your social plans, avoid socializing with others outside of your household. Um, All of these health orders only are beneficial so long as people actually follow them and do them. Um, So, for instance, Ryan, um, did, did you even know that it's been a health order statewide for weeks? that there's no groups of 10 or more or with more than two households. Is that something that that you're aware of or not? You can't have three households singing together? I did know that. uh, Yeah, you may know that, but but a lot of folks don't, and and yet that's a statewide order. So what matters is what people do, 
it's not what your county or state tell you to do, because honestly, your city and county and state are not checking on whether you're uh, getting together with one other household or two other households. But I, I think the most powerful motivator for people is people want to stay alive and stay healthy. And so we give them the very best science-driven data about what we need to do as a people, as a, as Coloradans, to get through this. And, and right now, of course, the mask wearing, uh, being careful, but the biggest thing is just reducing your interactions with others outside your household. We've got to do that in the next few weeks. Would you acknowledge that something's not working, though? Uh, well, clearly, Coloradans are tired of this this virus, as uh, am I, as is everybody. But the virus is not tired of us. It is still wreaking havoc. I'm hopeful that the uh, the vaccine, the promise, the light at the end of the tunnel, the nearing the end of the marathon inspires people to double down in, in, on social distancing these next couple of months, which is absolutely critical until there's enough dosage of the vaccine to really make a difference. I'd like to bring in Dr. Rachel Hurley, the state's epidemiologist. Doctor, welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Do you see a pattern in the latest outbreaks? I mean, types of hotspots beyond nursing homes, which were hit hard early on? Yeah, so at this point in the state, we are really seeing widespread transmission of this virus. We know that all age groups are being impacted. You know, we're seeing hospitalizations, of course, in older Coloradans, but also in individuals in their 40s and 50s as well. We know that, as the governor mentioned, that social interactions are a place where this virus is being readily transmitted. So those are household gatherings, um, gatherings with with multiple households, um, gatherings occurring at at restaurants where multiple households are coming together. Those sorts of settings are are places where we are continuing to see um, high rates of disease transmission. Restaurants specifically, you said? Yeah. So when you so as the governor mentioned, you know, we have an order in the state right now that says, you know, no more than 10 individuals and no more than two households. And we know that individuals um, at times are continuing to gather with more than one other household. And when those gatherings occur in whatever setting they're occurring, whether that's in a, a private home or at a restaurant or another setting, that those are opportunities for the virus to spread from house to house. The governor has asked the public to limit social interactions, uh, again, to people in their households. And at that Monday press conference, Governor, you said, uh, together we can save Christmas by doing this. Um, The state's seven-day test positivity rate is at almost 12 percent. Public health officials say it needs to be around five. Dr. Hurley, is just a few weeks of this kind of good behavior enough to, as the governor says, save Christmas or whatever holiday you celebrate? Yeah, so we do need to implement some strong interventions in the state um, in the next week or two to really reverse the course. And and I think this is why we're really appealing to the public to change their behavior, to limit their interactions with others so that we can see that change in trajectory. We really need to see the cases plateau, level out, and then start to decrease. And that needs to happen soon. Dr. Hurley, testing rates are up dramatically, and the state has asked Coloradans to turn on that smartphone app that will alert them if they've been in contact with someone who's tested positive. What rates of adoption are you seeing on that app, and is it helping? 
Yeah, so we have seen large numbers of Coloradans that have started using that app. We're seeing, you know, 10 to 20 um, activations of that that system on a daily basis, meaning that we are seeing it used for exposure notification, letting folks know that they've potentially been in contact with someone that has COVID-19. So it is a really important new tool that we've added to our toolbox, um, and I would encourage Coloradans to to take it, take a look at it, check it out, um, and and certainly add it to your phone. And that's the website we're using, addyourphone.com. So individuals should check it out. Did you say ten to twenty? Ten to twenty right now notifications we believe are occurring through that system. A day. Correct. Meaning telling people they've been exposed. Correct. Okay. Is that enough to move a needle from a public health standpoint? You know, there is some some early data that suggests if you can see 15% of the population adopt this tool, that you can have an impact. And, and that's close to where we are in the state right now. So we think it can have an impact. We'd certainly love for it to have a larger impact than it's having right now. We'd love that 10, 20 number to grow to, you know, hundreds of notifications a day. And, and that's really why we need Coloradans to participate. Dr. Hurley, he, one thing I hear people say who are wary of the numbers, who are wary of the alarmism, is that so many of the people who are hospitalized have what are called comorbidities. These are people who uh, entered the pandemic with serious illnesses already. And they, they see that and they think uh, that's an important detail in understanding the toll that the virus is taking. Uh, help us understand that. Put that into some context for us. Yeah, unfortunately, the reality is that a large proportion of adults in this country have some sort of chronic disease, whether that's heart disease and hypertension, high cholesterol, um, diabetes. We know that those chronic conditions are very common. So if you look at the U.S. population, about 45 percent of the U.S. population has a chronic disease. If you look at those over the age of 55, it's actually 78% have at least one chronic condition. And so so that's really the population that's out there. That's who we are. We have these chronic diseases. And and it's true that those chronic diseases can put us at greater risk of COVID severe outcomes. But the reality is most people in this country have, especially those over the age of 55, have some sort of an underlying medical condition. Governor, before the break, we talked about a plea from local public health officials. I'm interested in what your communications are right now with the business community, their concerns about a potential shutdown if the virus gets out of control here, and how that plays into your decision making. You know, at this point, it's whatever motivates people to do the right thing. Uh, I think the business community feels the right way. What is the right thing? Uh, Delaying your social plans, not seeing people outside your household, uh, wearing a mask, uh, keeping six-foot distance, washing your hands when you get back home. I think you mentioned saving Christmas. If saving Christmas motivates you, we all want to save Christmas, what what, what that means for, for families, or, or, or and and to do that, we've got to do better or, or – um, It'll be simply too dangerous to spend time with, with loved ones during Christmas. So whatever motivates you, saving businesses, saving jobs, saving Christmas, uh, I think the biggest motivator is saving your own life and the life of your loved ones, frankly. Uh, and, and, and hopefully that'll, that'll, uh, that'll win the day. But if, if saving your own life and your loved ones isn't enough, how about saving businesses and jobs, maybe your job, saving Christmas? Of course, I think of how busy the retail period is from Thanksgiving on to Christmas. Speaking of Thanksgiving, Governor, what should Thanksgiving look like? How should it change to correspond 
to what you are asking of Coloradans? So, um, you know, look, if you're if you want to spend, you know, indoor time, non-socially distanced with loved ones who are at high risk, aunts and uncles, grandparents, um, et cetera, uh, then the, the, the best course of action will be to quarantine yourself for 10 days or two weeks prior to Thanksgiving to make sure you're not bringing something in that can uh, that can kill them or, or, or has a very high chance of having a severe health effect if you're an asymptomatic carrier. Um, the other thing that many families are doing, including our own, is we, we're simply delaying when we're going to have an intergenerational Thanksgiving till, till things are safer, and, and, and many families are doing that as well. Lives, of course, are the main concern here. But to what extent is the state budget and the need for revenue, the need for tax generation and your priorities as governor, to what extent does that fit into this picture, Governor Paulus? Uh, well, there's an economic crisis in addition to there being a health crisis. The health crisis is the immediate one that we are focused on, rightly so. Uh, but yes, this is a tough time for Coloradans. Coloradans who've had their hours cut back, who've lost jobs. Uh, we have the highest unemployment rate since we have since the Great Recession. Uh, we're doing better than most other states. We've seen less of a downturn to, to our GDP. We have less deaths from the virus than, than most other states. So we're doing better on the health and the economic side. But all of that progress is very tenuous. And the better that we do with the health side, better decisions informed by data and science that Coloradans make and the better that we can do uh, a job in getting that data to them to make informed decisions, the better we do from a health perspective, the better we'll do from an economic perspective. I want to spend just a few more minutes on the question of the Pfizer vaccine uh, and how it complicates your message. Here is listener Acacia Fonte of Denver. I think The vaccine is a glimmer of hope. It's great news, but I'm a little worried about how that meets the fatigue as well for people who are feeling like (laughs) we desperately want to get out of this spot. um, I could see that providing a pathway to rolling back some of those safety measures. Dr. Hurley, the governor alluded to this a little earlier in the conversation, but to what extent are you concerned that the glimmer of hope the Pfizer vaccine or any other vaccine for that matter presents works counter to the message here of, you know, keep your distance. Yeah, absolutely. So so this vaccine is, is certainly, I think, some hope that we all need for, you know, seeing a light at the end of the tunnel with this virus. But I think the reality is that, you know, at this point, we have approximately 9 or 10 percent of Coloradans that have been exposed to this virus and potentially are immune to it. And, and we don't even know how long that immunity lasts. Yeah. Um, so that means that most of the state is susceptible to this virus right now, and we have high levels of disease transmission. We know that the first doses of the virus, sorry, the first doses of the vaccine aren't going to arrive probably until near the first of the year, and it's going to be smaller numbers of doses than we will ultimately need. It's really not going to be you know, until several months into 2021 that we'll have sufficient numbers of doses to start seeing an impact of the vaccine on our immunity in the state. So we have many months to go, unfortunately, until we can see um, real significant impact from that vaccine. There's also the question of a, a distribution system. I mean, when there are enough doses to reach the general populace, you know, h- how do you distribute it? I think of all the shortages of PPE early on, of ventilators, of toilet paper. Uh, b- b- is there an Apple system in place, doctor? 
Yeah, that is certainly something that our, our state is working on right now. We know that private providers are going to be a really important part of that distribution system. Pharmacies are going to be an important part of that distribution system. Yeah. We really are going to need to ensure, similar to what we've done with access to testing, that this this vaccine is distributed widely across the state and that individuals have access to it when we have the sufficient doses. Dr. Hurley, how concerned are you that schools are a fount of transmission? Yeah, so I think the we know that, that schools certainly can be an environment where this virus can be transmitted. Um, but if you look at our data specifically, you'll see that many of the cases that have occurred have occurred in staff. Um, we know that adults seem to be more likely to transmit this virus to each other. We know that um, things are different based on the type of school environment that you're in. We know that high schools are very different from elementary schools. We know that the mitigation measures that we have in place, the recommendations that we've issued um, to control transmission in schools are, are working. The outbreaks that we've seen in school have generally been quite small on the number of you know, two or three cases in those schools. So we are seeing that strategies in schools are working, um, but, you know, we need those strategies to stay in place and to ensure that, that schools are, are open to our students that need them. We know that schools play a really critical and role, a critically important role in the social and emotional well-being of our kids. Um, and they're, they're critical to, to our society. And, and we want that to be available to, to students, you know, as it continues to be safe to do so. Governor, in just the last few minutes, a few questions focused on Washington. Uh, What do you need most from the current administration just over the next few months to deal with the pandemic? Well, you know, I I think the the messaging and the unity of messaging is so important. I think it's so important that President Trump uh, addresses supporters, you know, honestly, frankly, uh, support wearing masks, support social distancing, devote his soapbox towards encouraging that. Um, there's folks that you know aren't, aren't going to heed what, what Dr. Hurley or I are, are going to say, but they might heed what President Trump says. So I think that's very important uh, in terms of reaching people. Uh, continuing with the uh, the support that we need from Congress around the health support that we need, for instance, a lot of the money we're using for testing, for tracing, uh, expires in December, and uh, they need to act to continue that. We we don't we, we have over 80 free testing sites. Uh, if you need to get tested, go to COVID19. Colorado.gov to find a testing site near you. Uh, we have just about a minute. Have you been in touch with the Biden folks, the transition team? Uh, no, I haven't. Okay. What do you need most from them? Just briefly. Well, uh, once he becomes president, uh, we'll, we'll continue that relationship that we've had with President Trump, with President Biden. Uh, and again, uh, hopefully he's uh, President-elect Biden is already echoing the right things from a communication side and embracing mask wearing. Uh, I think he's assembled a good group of experts. I think whoever the president is, Trump or President Biden, uh, at any given time, they should heed the advice of the experts in terms of how they use the most powerful soapbox in the land to promote the health and safety and the economic recovery of the American people. Well, thank you to both, Governor Doctor. I appreciate your time. Thank, thank you. you. Governor Jared Ball is speaking with us and the state's epidemiologist, Dr. Rachel Hurley. Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour. What are the next steps for wolf reintroduction? I'm Ryan Warner, and this is CPR News.
You'll find all the stories behind the results of this year's election in Colorado at CPR.org. And this week on CPR News Politics Podcast Purplish, we're going deep on what we think it all means. I'm Caitlin Kim. Join me and my colleagues, Benta Berklin and Andrew Kenny, for a positively purposeful parsing of the vote that was. Look for Purplish wherever you get your podcasts. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The Gray Wolf ballot measure still hasn't been officially called, but state wildlife managers are moving ahead with a plan to reintroduce the animals on the western slope. That's after voters apparently narrowly approved Prop 114. For what's next, CPR's Sam Brash joins us. He's been following this issue for many months. Hi, Sam. Hey, Ryan. And I promise not to make any wolf puns. Thank which you. You've grown quite tired of. I understand. They're just a dime a dozen. You okay. Know? Uh, this ballot measure was perhaps you know much closer than anyone expected. Just about forty thousand of the more than three million votes separate those for and against. How did that play out across the state? You know, it's a pretty clear device. Uh, you saw Metro Denver and the Front Range North, including Boulder and Fort Collins. They supported the measure, along with El Paso and Pitkin counties and extreme southwestern Colorado, so around Durango. The rest of the state, not so much, including most of the western slope where these wolves would actually be reintroduced. And even though the Associated Press hasn't officially called the race, as you noted, um, the number of votes that differentiate the two sides are not enough to trigger an automatic recount. Uh. And opponents have conceded. I think the geography is fascinating of that vote. Let's remind folks what Prop 114 does exactly, Sam. Yeah, sure. It it directs state wildlife managers to reintroduce gray wolves to the western slope by the end of 2023. Now, it does not outline how they'll actually do that. It just gives them the assignment, tells them, figure this out. Rebecca Farrell is with Colorado Parks and Wildlife, and she says it's important that uh, the agency have the time to come up with a plan based on science and public input, which is, is both in the ballot language. We do not have something in hand that we'll be sharing um, in the very near term. We, we will now begin the process of creating that plan. And while the ballot initiative directs the Wildlife Commission to restore wolves, like I said, it leaves big gaps in exactly how that should happen. You know, where do those wolves come from? How many are released? Where are they released? That all still needs to be figured out. These details. One key consideration is how to pay for any of those steps. What are you hearing? Yeah, so nonpartisan budget analysts estimate it'll cost about $800,000 for planning just over the first two years, and then that same amount every year to implement the program. Now, that is a rough estimate because we don't have a plan. We'll get a more precise estimate once the commission comes up with an actual reintroduction program. Another variable here is the amount of livestock that actually gets killed by these future wolves, which, you know, according to the ballot initiative, must be compensated by the state as well. Okay, so that's another financial variable, $800,000 roughly a year. Where would that money come from? Good question. Okay, so reintroduction supporters had hoped that uh, three quarters of the cost would come from federal grants meant to help support endangered species protection. But you might remember that the Trump administration is working to remove the gray wolf Uh, from the endangered species list. So not really clear they can get that money. That's the big twist here. The Department of the Interior in the past two weeks removed the gray wolf from the endangered species list in the lower 48. Uh, Wildlife advocates, I should say, are challenging that decision. 
the timing seems uncanny. I mean, what, what can you tell us? I mean, I don't, I don't think that that decision had anything to do with the wolf ballot initiative. Okay. Um, there are an estimated 6,000 gray wolves in the lower 48 states, mainly in the northern Rockies and especially around the Great Lakes. So Michigan, Minnesota, Wisconsin, places oh. like that. Uh, critics argue that federal protection is needed until the gray wolf is established uh, around its historic range, which is most of the entire country, like here in Colorado, like the Southern Rockies and the Pacific Northwest. By delisting the species, the federal government is giving the management and the protection of the wolf back to states and to tribes. So in a way, this actually makes the Colorado reintroduction plan easier because now the state won't have to get federal permission to take over the management and the reintroduction of gray wolves. But it also means that the cost of this program could land squarely on uh, state budgets, and as you know and talk about all the time, those aren't looking too hot right now. That's right. Uh, okay, so if there's not federal help in the end, well, gosh, what happens? So lawmakers will probably need to get involved in that case. Uh, the ballot measure requires funding for the program and funding for the compensation of life, lost livestock. Yeah. State Senator Carrie Donovan is a Democrat who represents Vail, and she said those financial concerns are probably the most significant barrier to any reintroduction program at this point. Getting paws on the ground um, does have uh, significant hurdles in front of it. Uh, this all comes in the unforeseen circumstance of a couple years where we know there will not be any extra money within Colorado's budget. And this is certainly an extra cost that needs to be accounted for. Now, I should say that proponents of wolf reintroduction are not against lawmakers looking into these issues. Uh, here's Rob Edward. He led the campaign for the Rocky Mountain Wolf Action Fund. I would expect that the legislature, especially a Democratic legislature, would have some interest in trying to make things better. Um, there was only so much you can do within the confines of a uh, single ballot initiative. So I suppose to some extent, they always counted on the fact that the legislature, the officials would mm -hmm. carry it further than the ballot measure. You've reported about wolves already in Colorado, Sam, animals that have reintroduced themselves, so to speak. What what has happened to them? And, you know, could they affect whether the state reintroduces wolves? That is a, a really good question. So just to back way up to, to last winter, yeah. uh, that's when state biologists confirmed that six wolves appeared to be living in northwest Colorado. And it's not really clear what's going on with these animals, at least to me and maybe even to the state. So before the election, I reported that state biologists had some early evidence that these wolves might be breeding, which would be you know, a good sign if you're wondering if wolves are going to reestablish themselves in the state. Then a few weeks later, I learned the state had reason to believe that maybe as many as three of those wolves have been killed in Wyoming, where it's perfectly legal to shoot a wolf on site uh, in most of the state. When I last checked, it looked like a few of those wolves had appeared in wildlife camera traps. These are traps they set up to, you know, take a picture when something moves so you can see if wildlife's moving around at night. Image traps, right? Not, yeah, not animal traps. Not animal traps. Uh, so, you know, that all adds up to, like, I have tons of questions about these wolves. Uh but if more wolves do appear in Colorado, if they begin breeding in Colorado, I am certain that biologists will take that into account as they decide how to reintroduce wolves, where to reintroduce wolves. It's just a fascinating part of this story. This year's vote notwithstanding, I understand any attempt to release wolves 
could face some fierce local opposition on the Western Slope. Completely, yeah. I mean, commissioners in 39 of the state's 64 counties voted against the Wolf reintroduction ballot measure. Ray Beck is a county commissioner in Moffat County in Northwest Colorado, the same county that might already have wolves. And he hopes that wildlife officials will collaborate with local governments and livestock producers. And he thinks this isn't just going to be his problem for very long. He thinks it's only a matter of time before wolves extend beyond rural Colorado. If people seem to think that the wolves are just going to stay on the western side of the Continental Divide, I don't see that. Wolves are going to go where they're going to go, just like any other animal. Oh, picturing one, you know, in downtown Boulder. Yeah, sure. Down Pearl Street, it'd be a it'd be a star. Does this increase the tension just in a few seconds between rural and urban Colorado? Do you think so? Absolutely, and I think you know you saw that saw that in reintroduction in Yellowstone, Idaho, Montana. I think wolf advocates miscalculated there, and it's a hugely polarized partisan issue now. Wolf advocates here in Colorado got to be really careful to make sure the same thing doesn't happen here. Thanks for your reporting. Thank you. CPR's Sam Brash on what's next now that voters have approved the reintroduction of the gray wolf in Colorado's western slope. At nine years old, Susan Burton had her first experience with dieting. At the end of dinner, she writes, I felt such pleasure, the first spark of something I would come to know intimately later, the power of renunciation, of waiting out a meal, of rising from a table still empty. And Empty is the title of Burton's new memoir, much of it set in Boulder, where she went to high school. It is also where her anorexia and binge eating disorder took hold. I recently spoke with Susan Burton from New York, where she's an editor for This American Life. And Susan, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you very much for having me. I'd like to start with the opening scene of your book. It's the summer before you start college, and there's a pint of ice cream, a borrowed spoon, and a dumpster. Tell me about this ritual. Sure. So that scene takes place uh, at the very beginning of my freshman year at Yale. It was the fall of 1991. And I'd started binge eating um, as a high school student in Boulder at Fairview High. And I had this fantasy that when I went to college, when I was in a different environment, um, my eating disorder was just going to go away. Hmm. And so I'd spent, you know, kind of the first few days at Yale really trying hard not to do it, not to do it. But one morning I just broke and I went across the street to a little, you know, like 24-hour food place bought a pint of ice cream, didn't know where I could go to eat it, walked down a sidewalk, found an empty parking lot with a dumpster, hid behind the dumpster, and just drove the spoon into the ice cream. The spoon was one I'd taken from our room. Uh, It belonged to one of my roommates who, you know, in the way you do, you bring stuff from home, microwave, silverware and stuff Mm. to to put in your dorm room. And, uh, And when I finished the ice cream, I felt, as I always did after a binge, um, disgusted with myself and also ashamed in this case because the ice cream was so frozen that I'd actually bent the spoon um, driving, you know, driving into the pint. And I ended up throwing the spoon and the empty pint away. I felt like I desecrated the spoon, like I, you know, damaged this item of my roommates. And then I walked down the street just um, so sad that uh, 
you know, that this problem that I'd dreamed would go away clearly was not going to go away. And in fact, wound up defining uh, much of my experience in college. Yeah. I mean, you write that on every birthday from the age of 17 to 41, you made a resolution to fix your eating. Help us understand what that meant to you, to fix your eating. Sure. And that's a really good question because the thing that happened for me, the reason I stopped making it uh, after that 41st birthday was that fix my eating, it meant it didn't mean get healthy. It didn't mean get help. It didn't mean develop a healthy relationship with food. To me, it meant eat perfectly. And, you know, eating perfectly meant in a way that would make me feel in control of both my emotions and my body. And when the, you know, the last birthday on which I made that resolution, I stopped making it because I was unsettled by it. I realized that I was a woman in my 40s still thinking her teenage thoughts. You know, I was really stuck in these thought patterns and stuck in my disordered eating. And that was really the moment when I felt ready to do something about it. Yeah, I can understand that the phrase fix your eating is so on or off, black or white. It leaves no room for grace. Um, And it sounds like you needed to make space for grace, in a way, around eating. I did. I did. Yes, I definitely needed to make space for self-compassion. And I also needed to bring somebody in. You know, I think for me, like for a lot of people with eating disorders, you're always telling yourself that this is something you can fix on your own. And that's what I told myself for decades. But it wasn't until I reached out for help, wasn't until I went for therapy uh, and brought somebody else in uh, that I was really able to make change. So you have indeed struggled with both anorexia and binge eating disorder, although you prefer the term compulsive eating. And I was struck by this observation in your book, not eating was the same as binge eating. Both made food the primary determinant of feeling. Expound on that for me, how restriction shares a lot with compulsive eating, overeating. Yes, and I'm really glad you drew attention to that because Eating disorders, you know, first of all, most of us who have eating disorders have experience with more than one of them. And and the function of the eating disorder is really to cope with emotional pain, to manage unbearable feeling. So when when I wasn't eating, um, you know, it was a numbing. I didn't have to feel anything but hunger. Uh, I had this illusion of self-mastery and control. When I was binging, um, I didn't have to, you know, binging was a way to dissociate, uh, to, as long as I was eating, I didn't have to think. I didn't have to deal with any loss or pain Mm. or, you know, it was high school. I didn't have to deal with any paper. I didn't want to go upstairs and write. Um, And then as soon as it was over, I always felt a lot of self-loathing, but again, that was a really familiar feeling. It was a really familiar cycle. Uh, so it both eating and not eating uh, prevented me from dealing with emotions that were hard to sit with, with, with things that I didn't want to face. You moved to Boulder after your parents divorced. So you, your mom, and your sister 
came west, I think from Michigan. And um, I'm going to have you read a passage on page 40 that both celebrates your new life in Boulder and foreshadows some of the hardships ahead. And I'll just say that music and radio are a big presence in this book. Yes, and uh, and that's one of the reasons I'm I'm thrilled that you're asking me to to read this passage. So this, uh, yeah, I'm I'm 13 years old in this passage. Okay. When the song finished, the DJ came on. This is 97.3 KBCO. The radio station started with K instead of W. I had moved out of W into K. W was the real system, and K was the secondary one for people who lived far away. Then, though it had been hot and bright, my room darkened. I stood and went to the window. Clouds raced through the sky like a special effect. I didn't know then that it would happen every summer day, a brief storm rolling in from the mountains. On the deck of the house in back of us, two girls sat on lounge chairs. As drops began to fall, one screeched and put a magazine over her head. They ran inside through sliding glass doors. I stayed at the window, watching, until I felt my mother in the doorway and turned around. I can't see her there in, that do- in the doorway on that first day without flashing ahead to her in that same spot three years later. Me sitting on my bed, slinging cruel words, a talent of mine by then. She, drunk, slamming the door so hard that the frame came out of the wall. Our later selves would have been impossible for us to predict. Her drinking, my anger, and the way I ate. How much do you think your eating was related to your mother's drinking? Well, you know, uh, the first thing I want to say is that my mother is sober now, which is which is something very important for me to say, not only so that, that listeners know she's sober, but also because that uh, was just one of the most inspiring experiences of my life, to see her transform that way. Mm. Um, you know, when I was a teenager, um, so as an adult, I now see... Uh, like I said, my binging as an addictive disorder. And, you know, I see my mother turning to one substance, alcohol, and me turning to another, food. At the time, I don't, I didn't consciously make that connection. But what I was conscious of was that we were both hiding. So, for example, I would be upstairs in my room uh, doing homework, and my mother would be downstairs in the kitchen. And I would hear her down there, and I would be in my room just hating her, not because she was down there drinking, which she was, but because she was in the kitchen and I needed the kitchen in order to binge. Mm. And, you know, I would wait, I would hear her feet on the stairs. She would go into her bedroom. She would shut the door. I would open my door. I would go down the stairs, go back to that same kitchen, turn on the light, open the freezer and start to binge. And I was very conscious in those moments that we both we're hiding out in the kitchen, uh, doing these things that we didn't want anybody else to see. It seems to me that a lot of pain in my own life um, comes from comparing myself to others. And you do a lot of this in the book. I mean, almost religiously comparing your body to those of other girls and women. And you were particularly preoccupied with their knee backs knee backs. Can you explain what knee backs are for me? <laughs> sure. So uh, it is It is a very funny metric, isn't it? Uh, 
when I was a little girl, uh, I was a swimmer. So, you know, there were lots of pools, lots of swim teams in my life. And from a very early age, I remember looking at the backs of other little girls' knees. Um, and I suppose, you know, in the way that another girl might look at the width of somebody's thighs or ankles, for whatever reason, knee backs uh, were were my thing, which which is is pretty nuts. I mean, I think your knee backs are pretty genetically determined. <laughs> there's there's you know, I've I've never seen a woman's magazine you know tip sheet or pointers on on how to <laughs> get you know thin knee backs. But 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 I say that in part because it was I, you know I don't know where it came from. Our preoccupations with bodies are so idiosyncratic and so strange. Uh, you you mentioned magazines just there because go, yeah. talk about an easy way to compare yourself to others. Seventeen magazine looms large in this book. The memoir once again is called Empty by Susan Burton. Um, years later, I, I think you went back to old issues of Seventeen. You know, from from when you were a kid. Mm-hmm. How how was the experience to see? those teen magazines that had so shaped you as an adult? I mean, the primary experience of looking at them, I was so flooded with um, with nostalgia. They were so evocative of that time in my life. Um, so, so I remember, for instance, um, you know, th- tanning oil was really big in the mid 80s. So by the time I'd returned to the magazines, you know, we were slathering ourselves with 60 SPF. Nobody was using tanning oil. Um, so so there were things like that. Um, you know, I as as a teenage, as a preteen girl and as an adult returning to those magazines, I wasn't as focused on the bodies of the girls in the magazine, which which might be surprising mm. given the subject of my memoir. But for me, 17, it represented, it represented, there was a personality type. I imbued the girls in that magazine with a certain kind of bubbly, easygoing, kind of popular girl personality that did not come naturally to me. That was not what I had. And that was what I craved. And so I imagined transforming into a girl who could occupy the pages of Seventeen, which had more to do with sort of emotional affect than it did with size. Um, but I do see that experience as really connected to my eating disorders because both things are about being kind of fundamentally dissatisfied with who one is, mm. feeling like one needs to be different. One needs to hide uh, kind of the the parts of oneself that, that one doesn't want anyone to see. You are very careful not to mention your weight at at various times in your life in this book. Why did you avoid using that number? So numbers of all kinds, weights, calorie counts, can be really triggering to people who are vulnerable to eating disorders, people who've experienced disordered eating in the past, people who are maybe on the precipice of it, Um, in large part because of something you pointed to earlier, that habit of comparison. Uh, So, you know, reading a number in a book and being like, okay, so if she weighed that and she's this tall and I'm this tall and I weigh that, oh my God, like I need to, you know, I need to change. I need to lose more weight or... Um, so it's, uh, it, it can be really provocative for somebody who's vulnerable to this stuff. What does sobriety, do you use that term, by the way, for yourself? 
I don't. I don't. I do say that I am um, working toward recovery, though. Um, and I don't say that I am recovered because I'm not. I'm still. Um, I'm still learning how to have an organic, uh, natural, comfortable relationship with food in my body. Um, I'm much closer to it than I was as an adolescent girl or even than I was five or ten years ago. Uh, but I'm, I'm still working to, to be able to say that I'm fully recovered. Yeah, and I think the tricky part, of course, is that if you are sober from other substances, you know, alcohol, you, you, you avoid it. You don't use it at all. Food doesn't allow you that. That's right. That's right. Uh, so when I, you know, the, I was binging pretty compulsively, uh, through much of college and the way that I thought I would climb out of it was to do what I called quit food. That was the phrase I used in my head. And I swung back into anorexia. Um, you know, that was a perilous, uh, solution that, uh, you know, I feel grateful that I avoided um, some of the most severe consequences of anorexia, but you can't quit food, right? But but for those of us with eating disorders, it's you know it's kind of a, the binging or anorexia, this kind of like all or nothing thing. That's that's very appealing because it can be so hard to regulate uh, your relationship with with food the substance but but that's the challenge right that's the the challenge of recovery is is learning to develop a relationship with food that that's more even you write at one point I transferred so much feeling to food that's a thing I haven't kicked food remains electric for me and I, I just want to point out, you, you mentioned anorexia, which, as you write in the book, has the highest mortality rate of any psychiatric illness. Do you feel lucky to have survived? Oh, I do. Yes. Um, and I feel very lucky that I had people in my life who were able to draw attention to the ways that I was harming myself um, and to help me get healthy. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. This American Life editor, Susan Burton, has written Empty, a memoir. Much of it takes place in Boulder. We spoke in September. Thanks for spending time with us. You can follow me on Twitter at CPR Warner. The show is at Colorado Matters. This is CPR News.